Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening from today. And I would also like to pay my respects to elders past and present. Today, we have an incredibly special podcast for you. We speak to two amazing women about the effect Taliban rule in Afghanistan will have on education, especially for women and girls. Ian Canellan, the Royal Institution of Australia's Editor-in-Chief, conducts the interviews, and Cosmos journalist Lauren Fuge narrates this amazing story. Farkonda Akbari fled Afghanistan with her family when she was just eight years old. After several years in refugee camps, they resettled in Australia in the early 2000s. This gave Farkonda the chance at an education that most children in Afghanistan can only dream of, leading her to a PhD in diplomacy and peace settlements at the Australian National University in Canberra. But in recent weeks, as Farkonda has been putting the final touches on her thesis, She's been watching from afar as the Taliban entered Kabul, effectively retaking Afghanistan. There has been growing concern about the effect that this will have on education, especially for women and girls. And with her family and friends still in the country, Barkonda has been speaking out. She recently spoke with Ian Canellan, editor-in-chief at the Royal Institution of Australia, about the state of education in Afghanistan. Yeah, I have done many interviews, but I think this one is so special. I even wore my um, my Afghan dress for this interview. <laughs> Just because it's for girls, it's dedicated to education. And then Ian has been so, so great to um, make this happen. And yeah, so it's, it's, a very spe- it's very special for me. For most of us here in Australia, it's very hard to form a picture of what education looks like in Afghanistan. Can you can you give paint a picture of um, schools in Afghanistan? What they look like? Whether there are differences between the city and regional areas, and what school life is like for people? Such a great question. Um, school and education for Afghanistan and for children of Afghanistan is something that is so valuable, so precious. Um, that they have been deprived of throughout the wars. These were international wars from the so it started from the Soviet occupation in 1979, and then the civil wars, and then the post 2001 onward, um, the U.S. and international forces invading Afghanistan. So these whole episodes of conflict affected education immensely. This is not a matter of days or months or years, but years and years and decades, um, four decades, Afghan children have been deprived of, um, of going to school, of, of, of being able to receive any sort of education. And Afghanistan is a very young population. Um, 70% of the population is under the age of 25. So we can say majority of the students were not who, who meant to be um, go to school, were not able to go to school for just uh, these political reasons and uh, that the country was at war, um, even at peace, so-called peace, especially in the post-2001 era that Australia was part of that, 
um, in uh, military intervention in Afghanistan, um, more than, um, I think about 3.6 million children still were not able to go to school because there are areas in um, schools across Afghanistan that were unsafe. They were targeted, there were attacks. And then those schools that were operating um, we do know that the schools, especially girls' school, were burned down by extremist organization, including the Taliban, just to send their message that um, it's not accepted. So here uh, we have this such a massive young population who are craving, who are looking for education as a way to change their fate. Farkondo's own educational journey has been comparatively fortunate though still filled with obstacles unfathomable to most Australian children. After leaving Afghanistan shortly before her ninth birthday, she and her family spent time in both Pakistan and Iran before coming to Australia. She did not have any formal schooling before reaching Australia, although her sister was able to teach Farkonda and her siblings the basics of how to write in English and Farsi. But Farkonda remembers how difficult it was when she was living in Iran as a refugee when she was around 10 to watch other children have access to an education. And there was a public school across from the place that I was living in, but I was not able to go to school. And every day I saw thousands of girls walking in that school. It was a beautifully brick um, built school and the girls wearing white scarf, gray, um, like long shirt and trousers and very colorful backpacks. They're going to school and then I was watching them. Um, I was not allowed to go to school. Mm. And, 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 and every day, I was wearing a big scarf to, um, to show that I'm not a young 10, 11 or 12 year old um, who is supposed to go to school, but pretending to be an elderly woman by wearing a black, uh, a black scarf so that people um, does not um, distinguish me as being an Afghan um, that is not allowed to, uh, to go to school. So that, I think the motivation for me um, after coming to Australia was that I had to I, I did not take anything for granted in this mm. country. I, I did work hard um, to be able to fulfill um, my own deprivation as a woman, as a girl that I was not able to go to school at that time. When I was looking at them, I was telling to myself that um, I just prayed and wished that one day I could, I could be them. I could wear that colorful backpack and then walk to school. So it breaks my heart today that, um, that thousands and millions of girls in Afghanistan are once again, um, there is a, an institutional blockade that does not allow them to go to school regardless of our own resilience that we have to, we have to fight our cultural social issues. Actually, to hear that I think is um, extraordinarily powerful and moving. Uh, do you remember your first days at school in Australia? Where yeah, did you I, first go to school? Yeah, yes, I do. I uh, we were resettled in Western Australia, 
and I went to an um, Australian Islamic college, it was called, and I, I was so excited. I, in the honor of those days that I was not able, I still wore a white scarf and I bought the most colorful backpack that I could find in the shop. And then I went to school. And, and then from there onward, I think I really throw myself in into the education. <laughs> After six months of language school, Farconda was put directly into year eight, despite not completing any of the other years. But she went on to graduate high school near the top of her class and attend university. The Australian Bureau of Statistics estimates that around 1.9 million people in Australia are recent migrants or temporary residents. Their thirst for education is clear in the data. Surveys show that since arriving in Australia, over 35% of recent migrants had obtained a non-school qualification, with around half of those obtaining a bachelor's degree or higher. Many refugee families have gone from a disrupted schooling and limited literacy skills to obtaining university degrees within a single generation. Farconda has taken full advantage of Australia's education system, but her choices would have been markedly different if she had stayed in Afghanistan. Many of her relatives still live in her home province of Daikundi in central Afghanistan. She says her hometown is a relatively peaceful place, with less conflict and fewer drone strikes in other areas. But it has been deprived of international support, and so basic educational resources are thin on the ground. By resources, I'm not talking anything about something in the science lab or the engineering or the computers. I'm only talking about a qualified teacher, a blackboard or a whiteboard and a chalk and a book to teach these students. My cousins, walk to school for three hours each way um, to be able to attend that school which is in the outdoor and they say that the mountain is their classroom and the sky is the roof of their classroom. Uh, When I was traveling to my province in 2010 um, I came across um, schools on my way and and students were sitting there and then they were writing an English paper um, an exam and I asked them um, about about their teachers and they were telling me that um, the teacher was telling me that he was in year eight and he was teaching year seven so the year seven was teaching year six year six was teaching year five this is where my cousins were uh, getting their education. And then, and then it was amazing for me because I was going um, there from just finishing my high school in year 12. And then I was like, what motivates you to go to that school? Walk three hours each way. And, and, and I mean it, three hours across the mountainous region. And they were like, education is the only way for us to change our fate especially for girls this is something that we could we could change our our future and the future of our families and extension our ethnic group our province our country on the ground in afghanistan there are dedicated people working to give children a chance at the best education possible which has become more challenging under taliban rule Pashtana Durrani is the founder and the executive director of LEARN, a not-for-profit that aims to provide quality education to all Afghanis, particularly girls. 
Pashtana spoke to us from a location in Afghanistan where she has elected to remain. So I just uh, got uh, off call with my staff members and uh, on the ground in the city and they tell me that uh, the classes from class one class to class six are still functional. Uh, class seven to class 12 uh, are not and they are hoping to op- they will open up in the next two weeks but I'm still very skeptical of it because they have been seeing this for the past whole month but they haven't been like you know standing by their word. Pashtana is also concerned that subjects will be censored, including history. Our history is filled with Afghan women who are brave warriors, brave poetess, brave queens. And now the Taliban are in power and they're pretty much uh, removing physical women from the public spaces. So just imagine what they will do with the female uh, presence and female footprint in the literature. Will we ever have... um, women or Madame Marie Curie in sciences? Will we have Gawar Shad in the history? Will we have Queen Soraya in the history? No. And that's where in the next, not now, but in the next five, 10 years, maybe the children wouldn't even know half of their female history. Why? Because the Taliban censored it. But Pashtana's main focus right now is by necessity even more basic than education, to use her charity's reach to address the humanitarian crisis as much as possible. People can't access money and all that, so we are trying to cover 20 families every week. Uh, we're trying to cover refugee families in the regional countries so that they are not left out. Like Farkonda, Pashtana also fled Afghanistan when she was young. She grew up in a refugee camp in Pakistan. But luckily, both her parents and her aunt were teachers, and so they opened a school. My auntie starts teaching there. My mother starts teaching maths there. My father helps with resources and all that. And the girls started coming to our school. And that was subconsciously installed in my head that education is the only way towards stability, towards financial independency, towards a more um, fair society, you know? And that's how I grew up. But even if schooling is available for girls in Afghanistan, they may still not be able to access it, according to Fakonda. You talked um, before about all of these physical barriers and political barriers that have been put in the way, the, the fact that there have been foreign soldiers and, uh, and, and all sorts of other disadvantages there. What are the what sorts of cultural barriers exist um, for education? For instance, is, is every family keen to send their daughters to school or in some cases are they opposed to it? Look, Ian, Afghanistan have been at war for four decades and um, it's a it's a society in conflict. People do not have food on their table. If a young a boy age 14 who could carry an AK-47 and fight Um, um, be it a mix of values as well as financial gains, this is where they're going to send their boys. Afghans are very honorable people from a traditional perspective to send their daughter to school. If that's going to risk their honor, they're not going to send their daughter to school. Right. And whoever who have sent their daughter to school, especially in the rural area, it is because the girls were fighters. The girls fought for it. Um, as, a, as a girl, especially if you're young, you're the most vulnerable person in your family unit. And there, um, 
you could imagine that where does education for that girl stand there when it comes to girls' education in post-2001? I don't give the credit to US, to Australia, to the international community or to the Afghan democratic government or their families. I give the credit to these girls because they had to fight their way through to their schools um, step by step convincing their dad, their brother, their cousin, their uncle, because everybody has a say on you if you're an unmarried um, girl um, in Afghanistan. What you've described is just extraordinary. I think that people listening, you, again, one um, must every day look in the mirror and say, you are lucky you're in a country like, like Australia where education is free. The main focus of LEARN, the advocacy group founded by Pashtana Durrani, is to make education accessible in regional areas. Our sole focus is on making sure high school level studies are accessible to every girl, every boy. When Pashtana returned to Afghanistan as an adult to visit relatives in the Kandahar province, she saw that they could not afford to send boys to school and that it wasn't safe for girls to go. But she noticed that her cousins were learning things from TV like how to speak Hindi. Her not-for-profit is now trying to bring digital learning to these communities, with the aim of providing a tablet to every family to allow students to access online learning. They are also looking to collaborate with SpaceX's Starlink satellites to provide free internet to these families. Now, wherever you are, if the Starlink antenna is there, you can connect with it and this page pops up and you continue learning. doesn't matter who is in power, who is not. Still will take six months for us to launch that satellite, engineering and infrastructure and all these resources wise. Now we pay for the internet until the satellite is launched. But when it comes to girls or any student reaching university in Afghanistan, the challenges multiply. There are 65 universities in the country, most privately owned. But to get in, students need to complete a highly competitive entrance exam. That exam, regardless of whichever, some, you, if you're in a capital city from an elite background, you're in the best high school in the country, but then there are people under the tent or even not a tent without a blackboard or a chalk, uh, or a chalk they still compete on the same levels. Mm-hmm. There is no, there is no um, uh, uh, sort of... Um, consideration for for students from disadvantaged background they all have to complete uh, compete and find their way to one of the universities throughout my travels um, um, and then wherever I went and it, it coincided with um, this um, these students uh, competing for those exams and they were like studying day and night one of my cousins he had like a, um, a rope around his neck studying that whenever he fell asleep at night, the rope would chop him and that would wake him up so he would continue studying. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, 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 and for him, this was that I don't have an opportunity to lose an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to gain the highest mark in the province in one of the most deprived province to make it to one of the national universities that is for free because the um, private universities, you have to pay, peace, uh, pay, uh, pay fees, which is a lot higher than what average Afghan family could afford. Mm. 
Now, new gender segregation rules enforced by the Taliban may further limit higher education opportunities, especially for girls. It started segregating classes in, at the university level, which is not a big deal. If you know Afghanistan, segregating classes is not an issue. We already have segregated schools. It's not a big deal for us. It's not an alien concept for us. But the fact that they expect the universities, the private schools and everything, every other institute to be able to afford, uh, like, you know, segregated classes is something very, like, you know, um, for me, they have to be educated on how it works. Because on university level, not a lot of girls do enroll in university first. But if they do, the since the, the, the like, you know, the number is very low. So they're just like, you know, in the same class with the boys. Now imagine that a class which is like around 50 or 40 students, which is very normal number in universities. Uh, in that, only 10 are girls or nine are girls and all these others are boys. Now the Taliban are like, okay, let's segregate classes. Now 41 students will go in one class and a male uh, teacher with the experience and all that will teach because he had the privilege to go to university, become a PhD doctor or whatever and is known in his uh, field. Now, the nine girls are expected to learn from a female teacher. Now, where do you find a female teacher in IT or in STEM or uh, uh, like, you know, electrical engineering? Mm. And even if we find it, uh, what, who is paying the extra bills for the electricity, for the rent, for the uh, resources? I personally feel like the Taliban will discourage women in STEM. In the last 20 years, um, I think the biggest victim is the students of Afghanistan, that they were not given a school building, a proper teacher. You're asking me a question about science and technology. This is a luxury. Um, and I only know students in um, capital cities, in private schools, and these students are made up of um, the children of um, Afghan politicians, elites, um, businessmen um, who made a, a profit from this intervention that made it to those schools. It is not the poor people which makes up the average Afghan people that could have any sort of access to STEM education. And, 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 and if I ask this question from the student in Afghanistan, for them, as I said earlier, it's about the blackboard, the chart, the book, and the teacher, um, laboratory or computer, access to internet, um, having uh, that sort of other luxuries that gives them that um, equipment to conduct um, science studies is, 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 is a rare dream. Fakonda, what do you believe will, uh, what, what will life look like for your relatives in, in the coming months and years? Do you think the kind of uncertainty that has characterised the country for so many decades will continue? This is a very difficult question for me to answer. The most fragile, the most vulnerable and young people who did everything they could do to go to school, go to college, um, go to language centers, um, 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 now have to put like, like 
blow it out um, just that they could not be recognized as people who have been educated in the last 20 years. I am aware that um, the students, despite the difficulties that I have been talking about, um, did make it successfully to earn a degree or graduate from high school, make it to one of the universities. They're burning their degrees so that they could not be recognized as somebody who have been um, affiliated or benefited from the opportunities of the last 20 years. Yeah, wow. And, yeah, this is, this is what they are now. I, right now on my phone, I have many, many certificates and uh, uh, degrees that my friends and my relative took photo and sent it to me before they would burn it. That is a very precious thing to be carrying around and a very hard thing to be carrying around. I can't think of an occasion when I have heard such hard stories. Um, and um, I think that what, what you are doing at the moment to, to finish your studies, complete your thesis and move, move through these next stages of your life. I think it's quite extraordinary that you're, that you're keeping your nerve. Farconda is currently in the final stages of completing her PhD at ANU in diplomacy and peace settlements, where the final due date for her thesis is in late September. But the past few weeks have been anything but a celebration for her. I've been juggling so much um, other work um, and, and PhD is just a minor now. Like I'm just trying to sort of um, do everything else that I'm being asked that I don't have a, a control of, but at the same time, I cannot ignore. Girls are calling me from everywhere across Afghanistan asking for help and then and, and, and I feel so helpless and hopeless. But at the same time, um, I feel responsible to be there and give my time to them and, and comfort them in whatever way I can. So yeah, my PhD is ending it at a very gloomy time. <laughs> Migrating to and resettling in Australia has given Farconda the educational opportunities that most students in Afghanistan, both now and over the past four decades, cannot access. But she is not an exception. She is just one example of the thousands of bright minds with an unquenchable desire to learn. If only they could be given the chance. If a girl is uneducated, a family is uneducated, a village is uneducated, a country becomes uneducated. So um, th this is where that... These girls have to sort of uh, balance out or understand in such a young age about uh, the, the expectation and that they have for themselves in the 21st century, year 2021. Whatever decision you make as a 14, 15 year old can have an impact on your family. And I think that's such a big responsibility on the shoulders of these girls. But these girls are not alone. People like Pashtana and her not-for-profit Learn are fighting for them and with them to get them the education they deserve. We are in the middle of launching this uh, scholarship for uh, girls uh, where they will be enrolled in medical uh, in medicine 
uh, per one. At each province, we will select one girl and she'll be enrolled in medicine. And for the rest of five years uh, or six, when she's doing her MD, we cover her costs. Then at the same time, uh, we do the same thing with IT. Girls who are interested in IT, we select one girl who is uh, like, you know, eligible. And then we enroll her and then we cover all her, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, like a tuition and uh, all these needs that she might have within the provinces. We're gonna start with Kandahar because I have a network there, but we continue with all these other provinces too. Hopefully someday when we have the, like, you know, the, uh, the funding for it. But I'm optimistic we can raise funds for it. Plus, LEARN is working hard to build future teaching capacity in Afghanistan. That's what we are trying to do. So instead of sending girls outside, because their families are already settled in Afghanistan, most of them don't want to leave or anything like that. I myself wouldn't want to leave, to be honest, if the things work out. So if you're in healthcare, if you're in IT, uh, you can study for three to five years. You graduate, you go outside, you continue your learning, but then your family settled, you want to settle back in your country, you come back, you have a PhD, you have a MPhil, and you can teach. You know, I'm investing in the first uh, crucial years that are important and then post that we can get them scholarships to become the teachers that we lack today. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, with its access to our exclusive deep-dive insights into the biggest issues. We have all the relevant links to the organisations mentioned in the podcast today, and you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the links that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Lauren Fuge and Ian Canellan, and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you.